your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Topple Empire, where we are closing in on the last of our team previews. We've got them in sight, but they're not quite there. So we're talking about people that just came up a little bit short. Iowa. That's a funny coincidence that whenever you just can't quite fulfill all your goals for no good reason, like everything was right there in front of you, it's really just a personal failing of yours that you didn't accomplish the thing that you've spent the last decade failing to accomplish. Um, no reason in particular that when we get in that kind of headspace that we talk about Iowa every offseason, it feels like. That being said, though, this has perhaps been the least Iowa football offseason ever, at least in, of recent memory, and that something of note happened during it. And in a normal offseason, the controversy, the, the firestorm, whatever you want to call it, surrounding Chris Doyle and Iowa football would be probably one of the biggest stories of the college football universe. Of course, it kind of it takes a distant, distant backseat to the existence of a pandemic and the question about whether football is even going to happen. But what we're referring to, of course, is that earlier this offseason, longtime strength coach Chris Doyle, identified by people in and outside the program as basically the foundation, like the cornerstone of Kirk Ferentz's Iowa success. He has shown the door after a parade of former players uh, aired stories about insensitive, often racially motivated mistreatment at his hands. I, everyone from stars like Akram Wadley um, down to relative unknown guys for down the depth chart. Um, there's, you know, it seemed as though this story arc came to a little bit of a conclusion. It doesn't. It's, it's not to say that it's over, but there was a report commissioned and organized by the school looking into it. Um, of course, like I said, Doyle was gone. Kirk Ferentz, to his credit, did clear the bar of minimum acceptable behavior. Um, he's gone. He's going. He's at least making the necessary motions, saying, you know, making reference to, you know, my. I've said that. I've always said that my door is open, but I have to make sure that guys are willing to walk through it. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's the gist of it. Her ears are majestic, aren't they? <laughs> Uh, and so he's at least giving the appearance of caring about getting this corrected which again that's the minimum thing you have to do if you want to have any choice any chance at all of crafting a final act to a long and successful career whether Ferentz really gives a crap about that um, I don't know his personal demographic an old rich white guy kind of suggests otherwise but look, you don't last as long as you do in the coaching profession without understanding that your success is built on the guys who bash themselves against each other at your direction, a lot of whom are young black men. Take note, strength coaches. Rabdo, A-OK. Racism's not cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, that's the other thing. Is it's not like Doyle has an... Do Rabdo, not racism's. It's not like Doyle had an immaculate reputation, but the Rabdo thing... It felt like, even though that was a clear instance of players' health being jeopardized, that was just kind of excused to me. It was after that that Ferentz gave him whatever that award was that he gave him, like, yeah, a you're the best award. Um, 
I believe he was the highest paid strength coach in the country. And again, if you look just at the results, that treatment was justified. Chris Doyle got the job done. Um, Iowa has, for the entirety of Ference's career, they have the occasional, you know, they'll have the AJ Epinesa here and there. But most of their best players are guys who were two stars or unranked. They put them through position changes. They put them in basically the Doyle incubator for a couple of years. And they come out 100 pounds heavier and able to play at an all-conference level and then go on the NFL, like especially on the offensive line. Tons of guys who were turned from basically what I was in high school into an NFL player. Um, that That track record speaks for itself. And the effect of losing a strength coach who was that effective might not be apparent immediately. And it's also possible that Ference will find a good enough replacement that it never becomes noticeable. But that's a variable that has to be answered. Whether it comes up this year or not, I think is doubtful. It may not even show up next year. But in the next few years, we'll get an idea of whether Iowa replaced Doyle adequately or not. So... Within a tolerance of one, plus or minus one, guess the number of games Iowa won last year. Eight and a half. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. the correct guess is always nine. Yeah. And they did, in fact, fall with the right, right within that strike zone again by getting ten. Yeah, and one of the more forgettable ten-win seasons recently, which is strange to say. Um, I mean, they had their moments, such as raining on Minnesota's parade. Yeah, but the the reason that this was kind of a forgettable season is that, unlike the off-season that followed it, it was the most Iowa season ever. Um, Early in the year, they have a narrow escape over an Iowa State team. Um, Iowa fans then spend a couple weeks pretending they don't care about that win, even though they're still reveling in it and talking about it constantly. Um, They have an early loss or two in the conference that puts them in a big hole in the conference race. Um, they get steady wins over teams that are not as good as them. You know, the upset of Iowa is unusual by a less talented team, so that didn't really happen. Um, but the thing is, the loss to Wisconsin, which fell early in the season again, puts them in a, a deep hole. You're two games behind a division opponent you lose to directly. So even when they beat Minnesota, who were, you know, the Gophers were ranked number eight at the time of that game, so that was a big win. And then they end up in the Holiday Bowl. They absolutely work over USC. So they get a couple of sort of consolation games to work off their frustration a little bit. But again, like, this is another generation of foundational players. Nate Stanley's gone. AJ Epinesa's gone. They don't have a whole lot to show for it. They have a couple of mid-tier bowls in the trophy case. The thing about the way this season played out is that even though you had that triumphant thing where you get you know, kind of back in the thick of that race by beating number eight Minnesota, well, all that you're doing is Wisconsin's work because right, that, right. what that did was pave the way for Wisconsin to absorb the loss to Illinois and then beat Minnesota and win the win the division. So, well, and so, so you were drafted, so you basically you were conscripted into Wisconsin's army to do that, their dirty work. That wouldn't have mattered anyway, though, because if Wisconsin didn't lose any... So, sure, Wisconsin had to win that game so that the head-to-head with Minnesota mattered. But they could have made up that loss to Illinois by beating Minnesota directly anyway. But you're right, yeah, they have to beat Iowa. And then, you know, whether Iowa beat Minnesota or not, really the big thing Iowa did for Wisconsin was lose to them. 
So, I, yeah, I don't know if I would totally agree with that. But anyway, looking ahead to this year's team, all attention well, wait, is... wasn't that Minnesota's first conference loss? Uh, yeah, I believe so. But yeah. so then if, if Wisconsin only has Wisconsin one Wisconsin went in... No, they had two conference losses because they played Ohio State after Illinois. Oh, I suppose they did. Yeah, I forgot about that. All right, so there, were, there was a piece missing. Oh, yeah, it was, it was going to be a top-five matchup until they slipped on a banana peel out of champagne. <laughs> so... So yeah, they so yeah, what Iowa did was functionally just give Minnesota the hook uh there to to keep Wisconsin in the race. So I wonder if the Badgers sent them a postcard from Indianapolis then. Yeah. And I think probably not. Yeah. So it's good, you know, so again, as good as that was for Iowa, it's got to be frustrating that like all you did was pave the way for Wisconsin because you couldn't beat them earlier. Yep. So looking into this season, um, they do have to replace Nate Stanley, probably the most ruthless Bulgarian quarterback we've seen in the conference since what? Chad Henney, do you think? Like, in terms of physical archetype, like, has there been a Frankenstein's monster lumbering quarterback like that since then? Like, it's it's been a while since we had a guy quite that impossible to tackle. Um, mm, Cardale yeah. Jones, you could argue. Well, he moved, though. But, yeah, that's He was huge, true. but he moved. So, uh, in terms of being a completely immobile, like, just go like, ahead and fling whatever you want at him and like just shrug it off. Like, 90 break tackle, 5 speed. Yeah. Or maybe, like, a little bit of speed, but no acceleration. Um, so, anyway, he is gone. I think, I don't remember if he was actually a draft pick or if he was a free agent. He ended up with the Vikings. I don't know if he's still with them. Um and normally, I always want to re- cut against the grain of focusing too much on the quarterback because there are 10 other guys playing offense. But the thing is, I always got a lot of continuity. And that's true even though Tristan Wirfs was a top 10 pick, the former right tackle, because they're bringing in a transfer from Indiana and Koi Kronk, who started multiple years at left tackle. God, for the I wonder how the hell that happened. Do you have any insight into that? No, not about why he left or anything, but... The thing is, he's able to come into Iowa and step into a starting spot. On the other side of the line, though, because they also have Alaric Jackson, who's going to be, I think, basically a four-year starter. They have a promising young center in Tyler Linderbaum. Um, I think they graduated a couple of guys at the guard spots, so they have to figure that out. But come on, you think Iowa's going to be able to come up with a couple of good guards? Yes. And then, to match with those guys, they have a really interesting group of skill position dudes, um, running back combo and Tyler Goodson and Makai Sargent, a wide receiver who's also a game-breaker in the return game, and Amir Smith-Marset. And then they found, they they kind of answered their tight end question towards the end of last season um, when Sam Laporta came on a little bit. They had definitely lost a lot of production from, you know, previous season when they had TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, two first-round picks at the same position. But Laporta looks like he's probably going to be the next guy. I don't know if he's going to be quite as good as either Hawkinson or Fant, but if you get 80% of one of those guys with the other weapons they have, that's going to be fine. So So you really have a situation where a new quarterback is pretty much set up to succeed. He just doesn't screw things up too badly. You have seniors at both tackles, a promising younger star at center, and really good skill position guys. So... It appears by all accounts that I've read or observed that Spencer Petrus is the inside track there. He hasn't played much at all, um, but the other guys are all younger. Like they have Alex Padilla or Padilla, I don't know how you would say it, who is, I think, a redshirt freshman. And then 
Deuce Hogan, who, you know, with all this talk about Black Lives Mattering, we'll see how long he makes it. But, um, yeah, Petrus figures to have the inside track. Whoever wins that quarterback job, though, they've got a fully developed offense around them to take control of. Yeah, it's gonna. It's, it's hard to imagine that they're going to be given the liberty <sighs> to make too many bad decisions. Yeah, well, again, if you can give the ball to Goodson 15 times a game, Sargent 10 times a game, you figure you've got five or six checkdowns to your tight end, a few jet sweeps for Smith-Marset, that leaves you, like somewhere between 13 and 20 throws that you need yeah, to make so you a game. Just, that's, just, again, that's right in the yeah, Iowa wheelhouse. Yeah, just hit enough throws that they know you're capable of passing it. Exactly. So, again, Nate Stanley's leadership and experience will be missed, but there's plenty here to think that they're going to be fine offensively. Defensively, they've got more pieces missing. Um, now, it's also fair to say that under Phil Parker, they've been pretty good at reloading in the back end especially. But look, you know, I mentioned him earlier because A.J. Evanessa is the kind of talent that they don't get every day in Iowa, just the kind of raw physical ability. Um, him being gone, uh, Brady Reef and Cedric Lattimore being gone, that's going to increase the pressure on guys like Chauncey Golston. Um, I actually feel a little better about their interior because Davion Nixon showed his, his hype was maybe justified a bit last year. They'll need more from him. They get a transfer from Northern Illinois and Jack Heflin, who's going to be eligible right away. Um, and the linebacker situation would normally be a little bit fraught because their possible starter at middle linebacker was uh, Dylan Doyle. Yes, of that family. Doyle so, rules. <laughs> not in Iowa City anymore, so uh, yeah. It's not like he drove a station wagon off a cliff, though. So yeah, uh, that's, he tra- that's... he transfers out of town, and presumably. Was... <laughs> oh, he did. He's oh, gone. okay, okay. No, no, he's gone. Yeah, that already happened. Okay, yeah. Um, well, they have returning sure. starters though, with Nick Neiman and Jamon Colbert. I think I'm saying that right. I mean, with if it's spelled like that, the D's got to be mostly silent, right? Jamon. The Jimon. Is it? No. Well, okay, I'm trying to get it right. I mean, <laughs> as as a 32-year veteran of having your name mispronounced all the time, it gets a little grating. So I always give my best effort to say the names right, even if I know looking at it, like, this guy is in the same boat as me. He probably doesn't care because after a while, how can you? Like, it just it just wears you down. But look, Andrew, the, the thing is that... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, right, so... um Linebackers, again, have a little bit of continuity there. Iowa's played more of a 4-2-5 set recently with, I think they refer to the hybrid player as a robber or something like that. They had an unexpected transfer from DJ Johnson, who looked like he was going to be the next guy there. So between that, um, Geno Stone went to the draft, astoundingly slid to the seventh round. Like that, I wonder... What can I say? Cracking down on headhunters in the league. That's not as baffling as um, as fucking as Desmond King falling to the sixth, but it's yeah. kind of like that where it's like, wh- what is the league look? So anyway, uh, Michael Ojemudia developed into an excellent corner as an upperclassman as well. I'm always just going to associate him with getting his lunch eaten by Felton Davis in that one game that we won that we shouldn't have, but. Um, he turned out to be a pretty good corner, so they've got, because of the Johnson transfer, they really have to find three new guys in the secondary as opposed to the two. But again, the smart money here is that Phil Parker is going to turn 
probably some kid from East English Village in Detroit into the next all-conference corner and NFL draft pick. So, yeah, cornerbacks kind of grow on trees there. Yeah. Uh, Matt Hankins has played a lot of ball for him there. You would expect maybe Kayvon Merriweather is a guy I would have my money on at safety. Um, the other, who's the other safety who's coming back? Gervas graduated. Who's the other safety? Oh, I'm doing this again. Why can I never remember? There's always, like, I, I get through the whole defense, and then there's one more defensive back that I want to talk about. I can't, Jack Kerner. There he is. See? And if it, just like with the Penn State preview, if I just keep talking and keep talking and ruining the listenability of the episode, eventually I get my man. So, yes, Jack Kerner, the next under-athletic white Iowa safety who turns out to be a solid player as an upperclassman. Andrew Kashiski always gets his man. <laughs> yeah. And I have... The last thing I had that we were going to have to talk about is the Big Ten must release schedule details if we are to continue pretending the season will happen. They did earlier today, so of course we'll have released that episode uh, at the tail end of last week by the time you're listening to this. An interesting quirk about uh, about Iowa's schedule, though, is that they've got Wisconsin and Ohio State at the end. Um, yeah, so <laughs> hold on to your butts. Not ideal, so I mean... It started off with a warm-up against Maryland, and then, then you got Purdue, who hasn't really given them too much trouble, but is always liable to jump up and bite someone. They're, fi- they're a little bit of a firecracker, and then you get the Floyd of Rosedale game. Things get real in Week 3. Um, after that, Nebraska-Northwestern Illinois is probably the easiest three-game stretch, if you, at least if you go off of last year. Because oh, that's the only three-game stretch that's remaining. Well, right. After but I mean, that, versus the versus the first three, though, because yeah. then yeah, you have then buys in week seven and ten. You have Penn State and Michigan State in that gap, and then again Wisconsin, Ohio State at the end of the year. So it's interesting. I mean, there's going to be usually the buys are not positioned in such a way as to divide the season up into discrete chunks this way. But really, I think you're going to have multiple inflection points here after the Floyd of Rosedale game. At the first buy, at the second buy, and at the end of the year, you know, you have like more digestible pieces than you normally would. And that that opening stretch of six games in six weeks is gonna be something. I mean, that's not a usual opening to a season. So that's there's be... only one stalwart in that stretch though. So that stretch could be much worse. You view that Minnesota. as being Minnesota, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean that's the only team in that group that finished with a winning record. Right. Well, and that's also, you know, they have all but one of their division games in that stretch too. So depending, I mean, if they stumble in that stretch, they could be in a real that could be in a real world of hurt coming down again. Three of their last four games: Penn State, Wisconsin, Ohio State. So, got they got to get out of the gates with all cylinders firing. I mean, if the new quarterback's ready to go, that's not entirely out of the question. Now, once again, when we pivot to basketball here. A lot of really good things to talk about for Iowa, and obviously the big, the triumphant news uh, over the weekend, the announcement comes down, the Peacock shall nest in Iowa City once again. Yes, Luka Garza, first-team All-American, runner-up for the Naismith last year, probably deserved to win it, um, withdraws from the NBA draft and returns on an Iowa team that's really going to be mostly intact around him. Um, before we get there... Remember when we predicted... Uh... Who was it? Was it uh, 
I don't remember what big man we were talking about that that we thought was going to have a chance to emerge with everybody going to the draft, but that their but that their nightmare would be if all of a sudden all of the big men just decided that they weren't going to the draft anymore. And so far, we've had Kofi Coburn and Luca <laughs> yeah. Garza. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although there's, st- I mean, there's still considerable. So Daniel Turu's still gone. Caleb Wesson, Xavier Tillman stayed in the draft. Um, you know, Teske graduated. Jalen Smith stayed in the draft. So a couple guys did come back. Yes, I d- I know what you're talking Deadline's about. Deadline's not there though, right? There's a secondary deadline. So more the, could happen. But Luca Garza is basically. Makes it does. This... It does not seem like he's having second thoughts. There yeah. was a lot of stuff. I mean, it was clear. I remember his dad was posting some stuff like this is a really hard decision for him. He's thinking he's dwelling on this. Um, it doesn't seem like he's going to change his mind. It's possible, yes, because the NCAA's deadline. I think the, basically the way it is is if you're going to return to school, that was the August third deadline or whatever it was. But then the deadline for the NBA draft is still two weeks from now. So he had to say he was coming back to school by now, but he could still be like, um, yeah, never mind, I'm going to the draft. That being said, he's had five months to think about it. I'd like to think by the time you make this decision, you're sure. Um, that being said, you know, last season, Iowa was a lot of fun to watch. They, they didn't have the finish in the conference. You see, the thing is, before I started writing these reviews, I was like, oh yeah, Iowa, they finished like fifth in the conference. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They had kind of a rough year in the record column, but they were a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Um, well, I say kind of a rough year. 11-9 and nine in last year's Big Ten is not bad at all. Uh, but yeah, and that's... It was probably Fran's best coaching job. Would you agree with that? I absolutely yeah. would. Because I mean, they lost lost Jordan Bohannon. Not at the not before the season, but after he tried to play for a little bit. He's like, yeah, I can't do this. i got to get this hip surgery. And then Pat McCaffrey, who was really going to be their main incoming recruit, I think we missed the whole season with Mono. Or something, or it yeah. might have been related. No, it might have been related to. I know he had cancer earlier. Um, it was one of the two, but he was basically ill. Was why but he was out. Bohannon was expected to be the man. Yeah, they were counting on him to be their primary point guard, primary distributor. Obviously, a lethal distance shooter. Um, so without those two guys, they were stretched really thin. And they also had a midseason injury to C.J. Frederick, a guy who they redshirted the year before. I certainly didn't expect him to be much of a factor last year, but he developed into basically a capable starting shooting guard as a redshirt freshman, which is not not a bad accomplishment for and him. And then who was not went a, down. Yeah, and so when he was out with a foot injury, their guard and wing rotation was stretched to the breaking point. And then because of how good Garza was, they played him a ton of minutes too, obviously. So there'd be a lot of nights... They were running like seven-man rotations out there because they also, Jack Nunge, another guy who was, I don't know if it's Nunge or Nungy. I think I've heard it pronounced both ways. Again, I do my best. I'm trying. But anyway, that guy was also injured. And so up front, they were basically running Garza, Ryan Kreiner, and Cordell Pemsel. Um, looking at that rotation versus this year, Kreiner graduated, Pemsel transferred. So now up front, you've got Garza... You'll get Nunji back. I think he'll be a redshirt sophomore. Iowa fans seem optimistic about him, but he really hasn't played much. And then you've kind of got... I mean, like, they played some small ball laps last year where Connor McCaffrey played a little bit of the four, and that wasn't a total disaster. But they're going to be a little thin on the front line next year. 
Now that being said, with the injuries and experience they've got coming back, their guard and wing situation should be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it isn't, <laughs> Garza's been fun to watch. Uh, oh yeah, yeah just yeah. try to take over and win a game. No, and the thing like the thing that I enjoy so much about his game is most of the time, regardless of he's because he's got legit three level game. I mean, really, I guess they always refer to it as four level. It's can you finish close? Do you have mid range, three point shooting, and free throw line? He can do all of it. And really, it's it's like on a given, regardless of what you think you're going to give him, he knows exactly. You can tell as soon as he gets the ball, he already knows what his shot is going to be, how long it's going to take him to get it. And you can do, for the most part, whatever you want defensively. The only time I really saw him limited last year was when they played Michigan State and he ran to Xavier Tillman. Um, and I know Iowa fan will be tempted to say, well, he still scored 20 game points, bro. Go look at the box score and you think that he still had a good game. Well, he needed 21 shots to get that. And he could be a little inefficient at times because when you have the ability to put the ball in the hoop like that, yeah, you're going to shoot a lot of shots. And again, especially when Frederick was hurt, you know, Joe Wieskamp had kind of a down season last year. They didn't necessarily have a lot of better options. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with him taking 18 or 20 shots in the game, even if he's not hitting all that efficiently because... I mean, he racked up a ton of fouls on opposing big guys. Um, his threat opened up everything, even though, again, not necessarily as much going in from his teammates, but Iowa's offense was never the problem. Um, yeah, I, they, they were probably going to be in the tourney field, regardless of what happened in the Big Ten tournament. Um, looking over their schedule a bit, they had the win over Texas Tech. That was certainly a feather in their cap. They beat Syracuse in the Big Ten ACC Challenge, a win over Cincinnati. But they also had losses to San Diego State. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And to DePaul. Um, in the conference, they also had a loss to Nebraska that would have been a bit of an eyesore on a resume. Yikes! Can't, can't have that. Can't have it. Um, but if they if they had beaten Minnesota on Thursday in the Big Ten tournament, I think they certainly would have been in the field. They probably were anyway. Um, and man, and talk about in the field of, in the context of a single elimination game, was there a player in the country you would want to see less last year than Luca Garza? Maybe, I would say maybe Winston. I may be a little biased on that point. But yeah, just a devastating guy, especially if he can throw it all into one game. Yeah, there were a lot of stories like that. Unfortunate. Yeah. <coughs> so we covered there. Uh, one other guy that I would mention briefly, whose game I liked a lot, was Joe Toussaint, their freshman point guard last year. Now, it's going to be interesting. I would assume with Bohannon coming back that Toussaint's not going to play a very big role this year, but I would still, I, I would remember him. I would keep an eye and, you know, you've kept a level head so far, but obviously what's going to be an interesting story in the Big Ten next year is because Garza, Coburn, and Dasunmu are all back, Iowa and Illinois should be, and, and Tillman is not back, Iowa and Illinois are going to be the preseason favorites to win the conference. And y'all got beef. Oh, man, I saw I saw a <clears throat> replay of Aya Dasunmu hitting the... Uh... You know, it ended up being a pretty decisive shot. And what I forgot about was how mad Fran got in the background. And they they, they showed Io, you know, reacting to, to, to 
hitting the shot. Then Fran comes on the court, and he just he just goes from like, you know, kind of orangish to to damn near purple, just shouting around. And that was the, the Illinois, five. yeah, the the Illinois Iowa series was <coughs> tremendously entertaining last year, and a lot of the key players are back for that one. Uh, yeah. Of course. Oh, uh, DeMonte Williams, lest we forget, not necessarily for his game contribution, but for, for, for his just uh, ability to really subtly escalate things physically. You need guys like that to be present for these matchups to get a little spice to them. You really do. The, you, the, 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 the guy that a, just kind of, ooh, I just, ooh, I don't know where I'm going. You know, I'm just looking over here and shoulder and uh, what? What are you talking about? What? You think I hit you? I didn't. I'm going to say this. Get out of here. I know he's on your team, so you may disagree with me, but you know who he is, basically? He's Will Sheehy. Ooh. Not in a bad way, because, again, he's a guy, He's again, he's that guy. If he's on your team, you love him to death, and if he's not, you hate his guts, right? I mean, it, I don't say that's because he didn't really do anything that I remember when they played Michigan State, but... In the context that you're bringing him up, like that's that's kind he of how I. He seemed to really do that specifically to Iowa. I remember both games. He was just and that, again, that's out that's, there escalating that shit. We talked of. I think you and I were the ones who talked about this right when those games were happening. This is good. We need like there's nothing wrong with this. Yeah. Everyone thinks that everyone's oh, gonna yeah. get along all the time. No, it's okay to be mad and not like each other. Like again, it, I can't. I cannot participate in. Like when the the Jordan documentary came out earlier this summer, I had very little interest in it. I partially because being a Michigan native, I would be partisan motivated towards the Pistons anyway, and I knew they were not going to come off well in a documentary steered and made by Michael Jordan. But in any case, it, it, I've never had interest in let's compare eras. Oh, the '80s were the golden era. Oh, the '90s were bad. I don't give a shit. See, I just watch basketball. What I like about and... highlights from the about about watching things from like the '70s NFL is how much these teams hated each other. Oh my God! You tell me the Raiders didn't right. legitimately hate everybody. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point I'm circling towards here. Is the one thing that I do appreciate about that is I think the reason that the '80s series all felt so intense was because they hated each other. Like, it, I don't think you get even with I think guys are more talented and more competitive in a sense than they ever have been today but i also think that it's not personal for them the way it was for everybody back then and there's something missing from that like there's an edge that you get when guys really truly don't like the players on the other team and we watch sports to be entertained let's not kid ourselves yeah come on there's nothing again nobody we're not calling for like malice in the palace shit or anything like that okay it doesn't have to go that far and it really doesn't because you know, these these are still college players. They're still there's still a bench full of graduate assistants behind them, basically as a buffer. Um, there's still there's arena security. Like they know the conferences will drop the hammer on them if they do a cat. Like there's, I there's can't really, really I can't relate to the kind of sports fan that can pretend that they don't enjoy a good NASCAR fight. Yeah, exactly. NASCAR fights are great. Bingo. And that's really that's really all that Iowa Illinois amounted to last year, and and it kicked it up. Just enough that, again, now that we have a lot of those guys coming back, I mean, they really should be in pole position for the conference this year. You could talk me into Michigan State. You could talk me into Indiana. Um, 
maybe maybe throw or talk me into Rutgers. There's going to be how many teams. home games does Rutgers have? Well, right, and and obviously Wisconsin returns an intact team that won a piece of the conference last year, um, so it's going to be crowded at the top again. But Iowa and Illinois should be the two best teams in the conference, in my view. So that being said, when we look at um, the recruiting class coming in for Iowa, you're not likely to see a lot of new names. Uh, because Fran is really going the developmental route here. So <coughs> his big-time recruits since he's been in Iowa City have basically been his own kids. Um, there's, <laughs> there's been a few others. Like, I think Aaron White might have been a four-star. Um, they've had... The only way that he is going to get four-star recruits to Iowa is to literally produce them out of thin air. <laughs> well, not out of thin air, just out of being Catholic and having a bunch of kids. Yes. Um, but <laughs> anyway. But yes, he will uh, make them himself. Yeah, so it is fair to say, though, that the developmental route has brought Fran to a pretty decent place here because he's got guys who do what he wants them to do. And so, look, it, you know, we're talking about Iowa here as a, one of the conference favorites. I think most other outlets would agree. How many recruit? How many players on their roster would you guess were top 100 recruits in their class? Without looking, you're looking. I see you're looking. The answer's two. I was actually going to guess a couple. Yeah, Joe Wieskamp and Pat McCaffrey were both top 100 recruits in their respective classes. Um, that being said, though, they've got a five-man recruiting class coming in, and they're outside the top 50 in terms of classes on 24/7. Like that's unusual for a Power Five team with a five-man class. Usually, because basketball because of the small size of the classes like if you have a bunch of guys coming in you're going to get a huge boost yeah um there are some real projections in this class um in terms of guys that he's chosen to take and again he's shown an eye for finding the guys that he wants you know dars as a decent example of that oh he was i think somewhere between 100 and 150 um but cj frederick's obviously another example i think i think joe toussaint's gonna be a star in this league when he's an upperclassman um, so the record suggests that a couple of these guys will be decent eventually, but of those five guys, only one of them is inside the top 300 recruits nationally on the composite. So there are some there are projection guys here. The guys are going to need time, and you basically check in with them in 2022, and hopefully they're ready to contribute by then. Recruiting isn't everything, but it sure is many things. It is many things, and it's many more things in basketball because, again... There aren't that many players here. You can't you can't coach up a system that hides a couple of mismatches. If there's two mismatches on the floor, you're gonna get blown the hell out. Um, and the other the other thing that I think should maybe have played into the decision making a little bit here is I was gonna have a team next year that could win their first conference title since 1979. They shared the title the year Magic Johnson won the national title at Michigan State. That's the last time they were able to win the conference. Um, In that kind of context, I wonder if maybe McCaffrey would have been better served. That's some SEC champion Georgia football shit right there. Right, right. right. But I, I just wonder if maybe they would have been better served swinging for the fences for an instant impact recruit or two or hitting the transfer market because that obviously, I mean... Think, for example, about getting a guy like 
Jalen Smith, not the Smith who just left Maryland, but the one who went in from Alabama to replace him. A transfer big guy, a reserve body, a guy who's going to be able to give you... Wait, are you telling me his name is also Jalen Smith? Yes, spelled with a G. Don't you remember that? Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Maryland picked up a transfer big guy from Alabama, also named Jalen Smith. And I made the awesome dad joke at the time that nobody's going to mistake him for other Jalen or, or something like that. Um, yeah, and so it, like, that's the kind of guy that you could have convinced to join a team like this, right? Somebody who wants a, a role, who doesn't have to be a huge impact player, but somebody who's going to give you something next year. Like, Well, you've got, what you've got to offer is minutes, uh, like, you know, substantial, not necessarily... Yeah, full-time I mean, starter, but spot starter minutes on a team that's got a chance to win a Power Five conference. Yeah, and be a well-seeded NCAA tournament team and all that. So like, like they were never going to get Olivier Saar from Wake Forest or anything, who was probably the top big transfer in the country this year. But they could have found something, I think. And that's the only nit that I would pick here. Again, like friends' record developing lower-rated recruits speaks for itself, but. You're not going to be able to count on many of these guys for much more than fouls next year, most likely. You wouldn't. You weren't going to need them to score, but having another, especially another big, I think could have helped. And I, I wonder if they're going to regret that if they get, for example, into a contested game with Illinois. Maybe Garza gets into foul trouble. Now you've got to play Nunji for, you know, say Garza gets his second foul at the before the 12 minute mark. Now you got to play Nunji for 12 minutes in the first half against Kofi Coburn. Like, that's where having one more body to throw out there could have helped. Your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle. Empire!